Hey guys, welcome back to the MindBot Adventure Pod. I'm Tasha Schumann, and with me is my co-host and friend, Jeff Warren. Hello, good to be here. This is the pod where we explore mind and body. We get awesome guests on who can lead us in practices that are near and dear to their hearts. Everything from movement to meditation, voice, tarot, the occult, everything. Everything that explores the mind and bod, we try it out. So today, Jeff, who do we have? Today we have on my longtime teacher, Shinzen Young, who's a mindfulness instructor, a neuroscientist consultant, a heavy-duty nerd, as you'll hear. Shinzen has many, many different kinds of techniques that he teaches. The one he's going to guide us in today is kind of a quirky one. It's all about trying to orient to our lived experience of creative thinking in the moment. So going into the head and noticing how images and talk sort of spontaneously appear. And the idea is that if we can really allow that to kind of flow, we ourselves become part of the creativity of nature. He calls it in a kind of global unfixated state. So that's the practice. How did you find this practice, my co-host Tasha Schumann? I love this. For me, this was one of the first times that I had to, you know, interact and practice with Shenzhen and I'd heard so much about him from you, Jeff. And so it was this really lively discussion. I loved how he describes deep mind, subconscious processing. We get into discussion about the intuition and human flourishing. And so this was a really pithy discussion for me. Yeah. And I liked at the end how Shinzen kind of comes apart. He gets all choked up talking about Japanese no theater. And it's like he's that process of nature coming apart, like seaweed in a tide poodle. You'll see what we mean. Let's hit it. <laughs> Have fun. Okay. So it is my real honor and pleasure to introduce a human being who's probably had more influence on my brain than anyone since maybe my parents. Um, that sounds weird to say, but he's definitely reformatted my consciousness. His name is Shinzen Young, my longtime teacher. Uh, welcome to the Consciousness Explorers podcast, Shinzen Young. Welcome. It's great to be here. Just by way of framing it up, you know, for years I went on Shinzen retreats uh, with a whole community of fellow consciousness enthusiasts. And one of the things that was so wonderful about these retreats is it wasn't just like you would do one technique. It was the whole jungle gym of meditations that you would get to pour your mind into, your consciousness into, noticing different aspects of how consciousness works, the different domains, the different rest states, flow states, changeability, all this. It was such a rich exploration. And so thinking about getting Shinzen on, it was like, well, which technique would we get him to guide? Because there's so, so many. So we decided together that maybe this really fun, interesting technique that you call auto-think could be a good one for us to explore. So maybe can you just say a little bit about what the technique is you're going to guide, how it works, and why it's important for folks? I don't know if I can say a little bit. That's going to be hard. <laughs> this but will be the I, challenge for Shinzen. I will attempt concision. We'll see where we get. So I created this science-informed contemplative practice training system that I call Unified Mindfulness. One of the themes that we work with is spontaneity in expression, and we call it auto. So we have auto-think technique that 
with time will foster the direction of spontaneity, creativity in thought. We have auto-speak, auto-move, even auto-focus, where you focus by not trying to focus, the do-nothing form of meditation. So there's this sort of family of techniques that works with how expressiveness can have a just-happening quality to it, but also a creative quality. Can you give an example of that, Shenzhen, that regular people might recognize in their life when there's a just-happeningness spontaneity? Like, how might someone recognize that that's happening? Most people have had the experience of what we call auto or spontaneous expression. The way it would happen in motion is your body responds to a situation before you might have even been conscious of the situation, and it was just the right thing. It was like perfect. And if maybe it had been a frightening situation and you had gotten caught in the fear, that creative response would not have occurred. But fortunately, before you even had time to be afraid, something happened or to be surprised, something happened and your body just magically did it, that's auto. Now, the trick is to be conscious of auto, to learn to access it easily on demand and to appreciate it and to train it in the directions of creativity. So auto speak is the same thing. You might have had the experience of giving a public talk, words just sort of magically formed for you, um, an inspired lecture, uh, an anointed sermon, etc. And it was like, wow, where did that come from? But it was just the right thing. Auto speak. Auto think is the same thing. It's what some people call intuition. Thoughts that just happen on their own and they're wise and correct by the norms of empirical science. You have an intuition, you check it in the real world, it matched. Sometimes that happens. You can be intuitive about things. You just sort of know it happened on its own. Now, if you train yourself in a standard discipline, say poetry or science, then when auto arises, Because you've trained yourself in the discipline, the poetry that you write is actually good poetry. It's not just spontaneous, it's really good. The science that you create anew because you had access to intuitions that equally trained scientists among your colleagues, they didn't have that intuitive faculty. You created not just important science, but very new science. And the science world said, wow, how did they think of that? It just came to me, self-organized. So we're not just talking about just spontaneity. We're talking about this extra layer of like wisdom or clarity. So it's spontaneous and true. That's right. That then in one way or another can be checked against the canons of the real world. So what's interesting is the theme of spontaneity relates to important aspects of life in terms of humans living their life with intuitions and, in a sense, a kind of bounce and the ability to create. That's one kind of life. But spontaneity also relates to biological life, free energy principle, 
entropy and so forth. So I'm very much into science and spirituality cross-fertilizing. So it's a great theme from that point of view. Also, as I said, we could do it with thought, speech, body movement, even your focusing. But if we do it with thought, it's sort of interesting because thought is often viewed as a problem in meditation. You're supposed to at least get away from it, if not sort of stop it. But we're going to actually affirm it. We're going to focus on it, but in a special way. So the way we're going to focus is a broad spatial concentration. We're going to analyze the thinking process into visual thought, mental images, people, places, objects, memory plan, fantasy. You usually get an impression of form, albeit often fleeting and ill-defined, ghostly, diaphanous, sort of there, but not there, but yeah, that was the form of that person, that place, that memory, that fantasy world. The other thing that can happen with thought is it can take the form of mental talk. And people are very aware of that. It's often called wandering mind. Although if you look carefully, a lot of the wandering is in visual space, not just word space. So most people tend to see memory plan fantasy images in front of, behind their eyes, mental screen, mental stage kind of thing. Most people tend to hear mental talk in their head, at their ears. If you ask, where do you have the inner monologues, dialogues, people will sort of point in general, you know, this way. It may be sort of polarized towards your ears or on one side in your head or the middle of your head or in general around behind my head. So we're going to have a quality of concentration in that we're going to stay in mind space, in your head, at your ears, at your mental screen, in your mental stage, all of the above. That's actually where we're going to stay. And we're going to let activity and rest come and go without preference that can lead to a global unfixated state in the mind by just covering the space. Sometimes there arises either a restfulness just because of that way of focusing or the thoughts sort of self-liberate. They come but you don't get caught in them. Or perhaps even the whole space of the mind becomes effortless and effervescent. It's just a vibrating arabesque of energy that is expanding and contracting like a fountain. Well, that's the elastic, transparent mind that Emerson talked about, that will flow as nature flows and therefore understand the nature of nature, which we call enlightenment. So prajna or wisdom itself might arise, but you also might get a great idea about how to redecorate your house. <laughs> Equal opportunity enlightenment. Oh, yes. I'm going to use that phrase. Equal opportunity. Wow. That has other 
Yeah, Jeff, that has other meanings. <laughs> Wait a minute, I'm writing that down. Well, I'm glad everybody got a full Shenzhen download before we even began the meditation. That's what it's like going on retreat with them, folks. I think it's important, though. So many times people are just kind of tossed into meditation, assuming that it will all be impact in meditation. But, you know, if you're entering meditation without really understanding the who, what, where, when, why, there's you still have walls up. And so half your exactly. meditation is wasted in trying to figure out what and why you're doing it. Well, the view supports the practice in a huge way. Mm -hmm. And then the practice Absolutely. expands the view. There's this dialectic mm -hmm. between view and the experience and, hey, the, and the conceptual hey, framing. you're hot, Jeff. I'm writing that down too. <laughs> it's so true. It's a mutually reinforcing feedback device. But equal opportunity enlightenment sounds to me like the name of a fundable project. Well, let's, let's see if there's any more elaborations that happen in the global unfixated state that you're about to lead us all into. <laughs> okay, folks. So you can do this with your eyes open, closed, or in between. Probably most people will find it easier with the eyes closed, but you can switch back and forth. Take a moment to stretch up and settle in. Feel the relaxation that fills your body. And actually maintaining contact with a bit of relaxation in the background helps induce equanimity in the foreground. And the foreground for us, our focus space will be mind space. Bring your attention to where you would hear mental talk in your head, at your ears. You might hear mental quiet, you might hear explicit chatter or subterranean stirring, incoherent perhaps even. So there might be various degrees of mental talk activity in your head, at your ears, that's part of mind space. But be, also be aware you may have mental images in front of, behind your eyes, images of your surroundings projected out around, images of your own body projected back and down, typically. All of the above is image space. We'll call where you hear mental talk or its absence talk space. Place some awareness in image space. A certain amount of guessing is going to be involved if you've never done this before. Some awareness in image space and some awareness in talk space at the same time. If that's difficult to hold, just do your best, evenly covering awareness of your mind space. That's your concentration piece if you go into body space or sight sound space. Come back to mind space. In mind space, try to have some awareness in both components, the talk space and the image space. You may or may not have the clarity to know exactly what's going on. If you do, fine. If you don't, doesn't matter. Have equanimity with don't know. And just let whatever happens, happen.
you're developing concentration, actually in two ways. You're coming back to mind space, some awareness in image space, some awareness in talk space. So that's sort of contraction, spatially. But you're also spatially expanding, trying to hold both the visual and the auditory at the same time. If the visual is blank and the auditory is quiet, you'll be aware of global mental rest. But if there's activity, that's okay. So having no preference between activity and rest is a form of equanimity. Having no preference between positive versus negative content is a form of equanimity. Having no preference between sense and nonsense is a form of equanimity. Equanimity purifies consciousness, which in the case of the mind, frees it from the compulsion to know, K-N-O-W. When it's freed from the compulsion to know, it can more easily attain tranquility, but also it can more easily attain intuitive insight. Continue to cover mind space. Now, it's possible as you do this that a global unfixated state might arise in mind space. What does that mean? Well, the whole space might become restful, so you're not caught in any thought, you're not fixated because there's not much thought happening. 
Another possibility is thought is happening, but as soon as it arises, it just dies away of its own. In the Tibetan tradition, that's called self-liberating thought. It's impermanent in a discrete way. It just passes away as soon as it arises. Or it may be impermanent in more interesting ways. Mind space might become vibratory. The whole space might undulate. The boundaries, amoeboid flux. Seaweed in a tide poodle pool. Protoplasmic streaming are possible metaphors. Possibly even a fountain that gushes and gathers. All of these would represent different ways in which a global unfixated state may arise in mind space. The space itself is not caught in its product, which is thought. If that happens, good. Rest in that. If that doesn't happen, fine. Keep doing the technique. You're developing concentration. You're developing equanimity and at least indirectly with time, you're developing intuitive wisdom and creative clarity. Not necessarily gonna be present for you in this instant, but you're giving nature half a chance in the future. For just a couple more minutes, Cover mind space. This is auto think, the technique. If a global unfixated state arises, that's auto think, nature's grace.
Okay, good. Now, sometimes, as the result of intentional practice, there can be a kind of afterglow, tranquility, energy, well-being, and so forth might be available. If so, tune into that. It doesn't have to evaporate simply because we open our eyes and begin to think intentionally, speak, move, and so forth, which you can now do. I invite you to smoothly transition to discuss our experience and for you folks who are listening to enjoy that. Jeff and Tasha, I turn it over to you folks. <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> okay. Wow. It's nice. I'm feeling the afterglow and just appreciation for, uh, just the familiarity of trusting my nervous system to Shenzhen. It's just been so many years that I've done that. I always know it's going to be interesting and I have this confidence in it that lets me let go actually and uh -huh. get more easily into that unfixated place. So I have a report and I'm sure Tasha does. And do you want to start, Tasha? Hit it. You sound ready. Okay. Yeah. So I appreciated the invitation, kind of sensitizing us to those spaces, which I know well through your system, the where the images happen, where the talk happens. For myself over the years, there's just become much less talk, but there's still lots of image. So I was just looking at an image of you and Tasha in my mind's eye. And that itself was when I realized there was a domain in my experience that was always filled with these images that I was half my time spent looking at that, not looking at the world outside of me, but looking at the idea of the world, blew my mind. It happened to one of your retreats. It was like, I'm not actually looking at the tree in front of me. I'm looking at an image of a tree in my mind's eye, as well as partly the tree. And you realize how your attention is not really in the world. That's what it means to see things as they really are, to kind of notice that and then really truly come into the space. So well, that's why we have this elaborate ontology that we give people in unified mindfulness of sensory experience that is designed to be literally heuristic. Like, okay, here's the pieces and here's how the pieces relate. So we have this eureka or eureka experiences of, oh, I actually do think in pictures. Oh, sometimes mental talk actually isn't there. It's not incessant. Oh, I have a half dozen subpersonalities in talk space. People get these insights because of how carefully the vocabulary has been structured. So when you said you had those insights, it means we did a good job of formulating the system. It's supposed to perform that way. Right. So definitely those insights I've had over the years and was having them again, noticing the image space, uh, the talk space. The, the thing I noticed there that's been so helpful over the years is when I focus on where the auditory talk comes, it often just cools out. It's like, if I forget about it, it's sort of, I hear this, it's like the narrator inside starts to start up, and then I look at it, and then it cools out, which is very useful. If you're having a lot of inner talk, to know that you can sit there sometimes and just listen to that space, it can actually give you a break. Not everyone has that experience, but I definitely did on 
this particular thing. So then I was sitting there in that state that I think you would call the global unfixated state. I was just sort of resting and noticing. But now I noticed something very significant. This is a big question. In fact, a deeply profound central question, you could say, to the whole endeavor, which is that sometimes I wasn't sure if I was creating images versus genuinely letting them spontaneously happen. In other words, I became aware that there was sometimes a subtle level of fixation where I would be thinking, oh, I should be imaging Tasha and Shinzen right now, and then you would be, therefore, be even more present versus were those genuinely spontaneously coming? And this question seems really important to me because I know for myself, like being able to notice when I am slightly interfering with my thought process and then knowing how to then let go of that interference has been very liberating around working with regulating energy in my experience, working with regulating over-the-top thinking that just keeps obsessively perseverating the fixation to know. So this thing of knowing when something is spontaneously emerging versus when we're creating it, I think is something that other people will, will be wondering about too. And I'd be very curious to hear your thoughts on it because I was able to kind of sometimes get in this place where I was really, truly unfixated and just weird things were just emerging all on their own. And then other times I felt like I was a little bit controlling in that space somehow. But, it, yeah. it's, it's a big answer to a very interesting question. This image, am I intentionally creating this mental talk or is it just happening of its own, quote, spontaneously? And we're talking now within the context of the technique that we just did, because the answer to your question may be different depending on the context of what technique you're doing. So, with this technique, whether you intentionally create the image or talk at some level or not actually doesn't make any difference. It's a non-issue with this technique. The technique is simply designed to develop concentration by holding mind space and to develop equanimity with three things, activity versus rest, positive content versus negative content, and sense versus nonsense. Equanimity with those three qualities in mind space plus the covering of mind space is all that the technique is interested in. It's not asking for immediate clarity. Specifically, it's not asking for a distinction between purely it just happened to me which is thought as perception versus I think I'm making it happen at some level, which is thought as expression. They're both sensory experience. So we're not being asked to make those discriminations with this technique. Yeah. Yeah. Tasha. Oh, boy. Um, okay. I tried to experience this as both a teacher and as a practitioner. Because for me personally, my practice is Dzogchen, which is so close to this, but different in really key ways that I found myself bristling up against. But then also being able to see how as a technique, this is really useful for people who have not encountered the mind in this way. You know, So for example, 
a lot of the times people will say like, I don't think in images or I don't hear my voice in my head. And after a couple sessions, suddenly they realize like, oh, wait, yeah, no, there's images in there all the time. I just have been taking them kind of as for granted and not even realizing, right? So in that sense, this is an amazing practice for that. In my personal practice in Dzogchen, it's very similar. It's like resting in the state in the mind and watching what comes up. But a big distinction is that we would do this with our eyes open to get away from the feeling that thoughts, images, and the contents of mind are limited to the physical head. Because for me, it was really constricting because I don't actually experience mind like that. Like Jeff, like you said, if you have your eyes open and you're looking at a tree and then realizing that more than half of your experience of the tree is your projection on the tree, is that projection here inside the head or is it on the tree or is it in some liminal space between or is it or does it just blow up the whole idea of space in general, right? So I went with it. I was like, okay, I'm going to keep my eyes closed and see what that experience is like. And it felt so constricting to me. And that's probably just because my daily practice gives myself more space than that. But then, so I'm sitting here in mind and I'm like, okay, we'll stick with the images and we'll stick with the words. And then realizing that they're like a continuum, you know, there's the thoughts, images, feelings, emotions. I can like nominally make distinctions between all of them, but it's not true. And so I was trying, I was really trying, I was giving it the little college try to, to, to do it and, and being able to see how this is really useful. But for me, it was really constricting and it was, it was not true to my experience, you know, and then in the quiet spaces when there was like quiescence or a kind of equanimity, there was just even just realizing that the background noise of that quiet, of that equanimity is this sense of being a person here limited in space by my whatever, my skin, whatever, and realizing that that in itself is arising in mind. And then at that point, it was actually a very blissful experience and got me to the same place that that Chekcha in, in Dzogchen would get me. But it entailed a whole lot of bristling against the particular method of it. So that was my experience. <laughs> Hopefully any of that makes sense. Totally makes sense. And actually is, I would say, 50% predictable if you haven't tried this kind of technique before, but you have done other techniques that you'll probably have resistance to doing it. So you did not notice the payoff that you usually get from the unrestricted. It seemed constricting, I think, the word you used. Mm -hmm. In the end, it went there because I just like relinquished myself to the, I was, I was trying to be in the space and then it dissolved anyway. So it just went to where it always goes. But that's why I was halfway through, I was trying to experience it both, you know, from like a teacher's point of view, because I think most people that I encounter that I'm teaching do actually experience thoughts, their entire being is being locked in the head. And from a Dzogchen perspective or Zen perspective, it's actually really hard to get people to feel anything other than that. So I see the total value of this practice. It was just really hard for me. <laughs> right. And actually, yeah. the fact that you had the meditation maturity to know, well, this seems like a lot of work and it's very constricting, but you didn't need me to tell you there's probably a reason for that. But people that aren't experienced practitioners, when they encounter a new system, you said bristle against, and that can become actually literally true, that it's like 
no, this is bullshit Mm -hmm. because of this, 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 and this. But really, that's they're not realizing that practice is a little more complicated than we'd like it to be. What about the insight, though? I think a lot of people do have this feeling that there's more to thinking than just the image and the talk. I know you're saying we purposely didn't include body sensation, which would be emotional body and what you would call feel in, and that that's also part of thinking and that is definitely in your paradigm. But even beyond that, for me, when I'm teaching this to people, sometimes people just say they can't, they experience thoughts, but for them, it's, it's more conceptual. I just wonder, speaking to that point of thought being this thing that's larger than just image and talk, potentially. Yes. So this is absolutely one of the FAQ items, what you just brought <laughs> up with this technique is commonly reported. What do you mean it resolves into visual and auditory? It just springs into my head, fully formed, like uh, Aphrodite on on the half shell. You know, it's like the birth of Venus out of the head of Zeus. It's it's just all there as, like you say, it's just a concept. It's just a thought. It's fully formed. It doesn't resolve into image and talk. If that's your experience, well, with this technique, fine, it doesn't matter. You're not being asked to be clear about image versus talk with this technique. However, I will say that with time, what happens is you start to realize there's more to thought than surface image and talk. That is true. Now, there's a lot more (laughs) if you bring in the body. But if you don't bring in the body, is there still more to thought than surface image and surface mental talk that you could describe the image? So is there more to thought than that? Yes. There is the subliminal processing that underlies the arising of the images. And there is the subliminal processing, the below threshold of processing that underlies the arising of the mental talk. And then there are the depths that are beneath even the subliminal, the vast unconscious depths that are early processing for everything visual, auditory, somatic, be it on the perceptual side or the expression side. The depths, it's all the same down there. And those roll as part of nature, like the ocean. And the surface talk image and emotional and even physical body, those are some foam on the surface. So when you're having that experience of, this is just a thought, what do you mean image talk? Well, it doesn't matter what technique you use, at some point, if your concentration, clarity, and equanimity reach a certain threshold, you'll start to notice that even when you don't have explicit images, there's a tug 
towards image space. Even when you don't have mental talk on the surface in terms of words, phrases you could repeat, there's a tug towards talk space. And actually, often there's a tug towards image space and talk space at the same time. And yes, indeed, often when that happens, there's a tug to the emotional body and even sometimes the physical body. That's all true. But just before that tug, to see, hear, feel, think, speak, move, or any combination thereof, just before that tug of the space was the actual now, the moment of arising of that space-time volume of see, hear, feel, speak, think, move. That's the beginning. And you don't know what it is because it's massively parallel and wickedly fleeting. You don't know what it is. You don't care what it is. It doesn't matter what it is. The depths take care of the depths. That's the part that you don't have to train. That's the part you discover, to use your words, Jeff. So the tug of space is the beginning of time. And when you're just having a thought, you'll eventually learn to detect that as something that precedes the tug of space. And you can call that God, you can call that nature, you can call that the true self, the no self, oneness, emptiness, be my guest. We don't care what you call it. We very much care that you experience it. So that's what I have to say about that. What's the relationship between spontaneity and wisdom then? And you want concision. We're already <laughs> an yes. hour. And you want another round of Shenzhenian pontification. No, I want a couple mind-blowing Shenzhen statements. You want a couple sound bites that are also scientifically and spiritually correct. That's a tall order, <laughs> tall dude, order. <laughs> on this one. You can do it, uh, my man. I've seen uh, it happen. I, I've heard it happen. Well, I can do it. I'm not sure I can do it in five minutes. Uh, but no, 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 we're going to try. Because you are this, Shinzen. <laughs> you just open your mouth, and you often I see you just things just self-organize in a way yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, but the problem is half the time it's profanity. So uh, repeat sometimes. your question. And sometimes it's long, elaborate, rigid structures that you're determined to get every little part in. But I see every part of it happen. Yeah. Go, uh, repeat the question, please. The relationship between spontaneity and wisdom. When you open that channel and really just let yourself be nature, something can come through that doesn't feel like you, or it doesn't feel only like you. I don't even know how you explain it. it it's just there. It's just. I mean, the intuitions come through, the creativity comes through, the insight, the understanding that is so primordial, it feels effortless. And it happens when I teach, it happens when I'm doing writing, and I know I've seen it happen to Tasha all the time, and I see it happen with you all the time, and I see it among practitioners and teachers, and I see it among artists, I see it among regular people. But it's a very true direction that becomes, that is deeply, deeply, powerfully significant, because you're in that channel. You're so... 
you're in also a meaning channel. You have an experience of meaningfulness and connection that is beyond words. And yet the content that's coming out oftentimes is extremely relevant, skillful, creative, helpful, meaningful, beautiful as well. I get the idea. The relationship between spontaneity and wisdom. So let's start with what we might call the embodied side of the picture, the human side of the picture. So this is human wisdom and human creativity, human spontaneity. So there's some really good news here. You described how good it is. And the good news is I do believe it's not just a talent and not just an intrinsic intelligence, but a trainable talent and a trainable intelligence, a trainable strength, a trainable skill. The trainability of the human wisdom function, I think, is a huge scientific statement that we can prove with experiment. That means we can up creativity in humans. So human creativity, how do you get that? I actually somewhat answered it in an earlier part, which may have gone on the B-roll, but essentially it's two things. You get in contact with nature's spontaneity through various focusing exercises, and then you get good in a particular skill. It could be an academic skill, it could be a performance skill, it could be a hobby skill, but you get very, very good at that skill. You're taught by the best, hopefully, in that skill. When you deeply master that skill and your neural circuitry has become more elastic and fluid due to some form, call it meditation, mindfulness, contemplation, what have you, but the citta, the C-I-T-T-A, the substance of consciousness is now elastic. It's effortless and effervescent. That combined with the expert knowledge that you have allows the subconscious to now know things that before would have had to entail conscious processing. So when the surface becomes an expert athletic coach or an expert meditation teacher or art teacher, what have you, when the surface becomes that, if the depths have become fluid due to, quote, meditation, then what's going to happen is the depths have also become expert in their own way, and they make connections for you. When that happens in theater, we have the deepest theory of acting ever developed on this planet, Ze'ami Kadensho, the book of the flower transmission, tells the medieval no-N-O-H drama theory of acting. The actor goes to the emptiness. The green room is a mirror room. 
where it's like Greek acting. They have masks. There's a chorus. It's very archaic, very Buddhist, very unworldly. If you've ever heard, no, that's the oldest surviving dramatic tradition on the planet. It's essentially Greek tragedy and comedy in Japanese form. They just discovered these forms on their own. The mass, the chorus, the whole thing. And, but they came up with an, a theory of acting that, makes, that leaves Aristotle in, in the dust. The green room is a mirror room. The actor has, I'm getting emotional just thinking about the depth of that culture to, in the 15th century to know this. The actor empties themselves out. They look at their reflection and they wait for nature to just take over. It's not a performance. They're manifesting it from the source. And they call that the flower of the art of acting in Japan. Kadensho, the book of transmitting the flower. So a human can train themselves to attain the flower in whatever, quote, art they want, including how they raise their family as an art form. It's universal. That's human spontaneity, human creativity. There's also spontaneity as used in science, which is very much related to thermodynamics, free energy, entropy. Spontaneity appears there also. And my conjecture, my hope is we're going to luck out. And this is going to be one of those stepping stones where the vocabulary of spirituality and the vocabulary of science are close enough that we can start to draw parallel principles both for theoretical science and philosophy and for applied science, uh, translational, clinical, engineering science. Because if these are linked, they give us a way to have a true science of enlightenment. But that gives us a way to have a true science of human flourishing, which replaces the current pessimism about flourishing, survival, wicked problems of the planet, and so forth. It represents a scientifically anchored, tangible set of stepping stones to become more optimistic about these things, to have a tempered optimism. You know, I think we're going to not only survive, we're going to flourish and we're going to get rid of our own wickedness and therefore we'll be able to solve at least some of the wicked problems and the ones that we can't, it doesn't matter because we're, we have become our better angels in this century. So there's real reason to hope, I would say, to be optimistic. And spontaneity may be one of those things that links biology, which is the science of life as science, with life as lived, 
embodied existence, the other meaning of life. So I think what you're saying, Chinzen, is that below the human spontaneity, our nervous system is also expressing a kind of cosmic spontaneity. Yes. Something, a, a primordial ordering principle of which that we partake of that's below our culture. And this is enlightenment, basically, to be continually in contact with that in your framework. Well, this is the part of enlightenment moment. that you described as the discovery part. Mm -hmm. It's part of the discovery part. That's right. Okay, so I'm going to claim that this, what I'm describing, this training, contemplative practice, is evolutionary. It moves us to our better angels. It moves us in the direction that we've been moving as we move away from the primate that's more like a great ape that's not a human. What has made us so different? Those are the better angels, our intelligence, our emotional maturity, our language, the presence of language and precision with language, the ability to be logical about things. These are all our better angels. We're not being disrespectful to our hominid cousins by saying this. We just do some things much better than they do. Not saying it's better or even necessarily happier, but we're different. And those better angels are what we want to foster if we want to survive and if we want to deal with wicked problems, because wicked problems go to the Christians are right. There's a kind of wickedness <laughs> inside of us. We're half done, we're half between the beast, and the kingdom of heaven. But we're smart enough to know that and to know how to fix it. We're fixing Darwin. This is big biology. So I'm claiming that as contemplative practice and science find these intersections, that they'll move together, reinforcing each other, co-evolving. Um, in a natural way. Um, and the spontaneity piece is perhaps one of those important intersections that allows for the cross-fertilization and the positive mutual biological evolution of the human culture meme called contemplative practice mm. and the human culture meme called the scientific method. So big picture stuff. Beautiful. I'm curious to bring this back around to the individual listener. What does that mean on the day to day? Be happy and work hard. <laughs> That's what it means, folks. It means be optimistic and work your buns off. With your practice. With your practice. So you can become these things. <laughs> become the solution. I think that's a wrap, huh? Thanks for tuning in to the Consciousness Explorers podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like this episode, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. See you next week for a whole new adventure.